Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Glenn, and I'm here to nerd out on media policy today. And I'm Jennifer Waits. I'm here as well. And to help us do that nerding out, we welcome back to the program a, a dear friend of the program, Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota. Always great to be here. It's been some weeks here, Chris. And <laughs> the, Double anyway, right? The two things we want to talk about with you. One is directly related to the inauguration of President Biden. And that is some new interim leadership at the Federal Communications Commission. But also, which I think we'll spend more of our time on, the FCC was in front of the Supreme Court on January 19th, so the day before the inauguration, defending itself. and Not we'll a common political occurrence in the United States. Yeah, so we'll definitely want to catch up on that. We know you are watching it closely. So first off, with a new administration, especially one in which uh, it's a different party, now the Democrats in charge, uh, always means a, a new uh, chairperson of the FCC. The FCC has five commissioners. Three from the party in power, so in this case it will be the Democrats. Two from the minority party, which is Republicans. And then, of course, the chairperson is a commissioner from the party in power. And uh, we understand that right now two-term FCC commissioner Jessica Rosenworcel has been named the interim FCC chair. Chris, what do we need to know about Ms. Rosenworcel? Well, as you mentioned, she's close to the end of her second term. She'll actually need to be renominated before the end of 2021. But she's been appointed interim chair. This is the standard transition appointment. Usually the senior member on the commission who is representative of the party that is now in control of the administrative agencies is usually temporarily promoted while Congress gets appointments sorted out. It's not a surprise that Commissioner Rosenworcel was appointed interim commissioner. The couple days after the Biden uh, inauguration, there wasn't a formal announcement. I mean, it wasn't unexpected that this is how it would go, but there wasn't a formal announcement of it until uh, the middle of the, or towards the end of the last week. Uh, That said, um, she's an interesting character. She has, like most commissioners, she has a sort of a pet issue, and her pet issue is the digital divide. She's very concerned about not only broadband deployment, but broadband access. And that was true before COVID broke out, but it's certainly been sort of towards the top of her list since she's been on the commission. She's very very active and uh, has spent a great deal of time while she's been on the commission promoting the idea that better broadband is is basically a necessary requirement for educational purposes at this point. And she's really taken kind of a very grim view of situations where internet access is not great in certain areas. The stories where kids will go to a parking lot to do their homework because they can use a restaurant's Wi-Fi which is actually better service than they're able to get at their home, even if in in the cases where they have Wi-Fi at home, but in many cases where they actually don't have the resources either physically or financially to access broadband. So that's been her pet issue. In terms of my personal interest in the FCC, there had been some talk that Commissioner Clyburn would come back. She was uh, interim chair previously. Right, so this is Commissioner uh, Mignon Clyburn. Uh, right, right. Who served in the Obama years, and I think she served a little bit in. Did she serve during the Trump years? I know that she served uh, alongside it, uh, Commissioner Pye, but it might have been 
earlier. It was. I think she was gone before the. Uh, I think Stokes was there before um, Trump came in. But either way, her pet issue was minority involvement with m- multimedia, and certainly my personal interest in FCC regulation. I've actually interacted with Commissioner Clyburn when she was on the commission, some especially with her staff. And I would have been very happy to see her. The word is, is that she was approached about the chair position, like the permanent chair position or the lengthy chair position, but said, thanks, but no thanks. Um, I don't, I've heard that through the wire and from some sources that I talk to regularly. Yeah. Well, she now is like heading up a digital equity nonprofit, right? right? Uh, Yes. So I think that may be a place where she feels like she can have a lot of effect right now. When you get commissioners, uh, you know, when you go through these transitions, whether they're Republican or Democratic, uh, commissioner changes, it is always nice to go with people you know and who have some experience on the commission. Well, the learning curve is hard. You know, the Federal Communications Commission is in charge of a lot of stuff. And if somebody who's been there and sort of understands how the processes work and, and understands sort of some, at least the background of the ongoing initiatives, it's, it's helpful because it lets the commission get back to work, you know, and right now what we're looking at is a 2-2 commission. Yes, it's nominally under Dem control, but we don't have either a permanent uh, or sort of the long-term appointment of Commissioner Rosenworcel to the chair position, and we don't have a name for a third commissioner on the Dem side either way. And, you know, I'm sure the FCC isn't at the top of the Biden appointee list as it goes through the nomination process with Congress. So, you know, it may be a few weeks, maybe even a month or two before we have a fully constituted commission. And, you know, that's going to set back the timeline on a lot of initiatives that are in progress at the commission, things like broadband deployment and uh, media ownership, but also things like the spectrum auctions and everything. Those things can't proceed with a two, two commission unless everybody's on board with it, basically. Right. They can only get business done with it where there's uh, at least three members yeah. who are on board. Right. Yeah. A, a weirdly, and, a, like a truly bipartisan agreement on something. Yeah. And to be fair, the commission actually does have, a fair amount of that kind of procedurally. That yeah, I mean, I can imagine a world in which, um, uh, you know, broadband access across the United States would be a bipartisan issue. Lots of rural areas that are represented by Republicans. Well, it's more about how that happens. Ridiculously political. happens, I think. Right. Yeah, that's always been the thing about the FCC over the last, um, you know, certainly the last 20 years, is that it's not that they disagree about what needs to be done. It's It's the how. That needs to be needs to be done, or how problems should be approached, and that has really been a, a hard divide at the commission, going back twenty, some maybe even thirty years at this point. And it, you know, that's can I, can it's I, indicative can I of a, a guess, and then you can explain it to me. Uh, the Republican side wants uh, private industry to, uh, to 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 do it uh, out of the goodness of their heart, and the Democrat side wants government to regulate private industry to force them to do it. Well, that's. Sometimes true. It's not always true. Um, you know, Democratic support for spectrum auctions would sort of undermine your argument there, uh, as opposed to, say, a comparative hearing situation that we used to have back in the day. And what you're saying is that that, that spectrum that's being freed up for uses like uh, Wi-Fi or, uh, you know, 5G, um, that is actually auctioned off, you know, to the highest bidder, whereas in the past uh, it was more of a comparative process that would decide, be, you know, on the merits of the of the uh, possible claimants of the applicants, right? Sort of like right. the difference between how LPFM 
uh, low power FM licenses are given up out on that kind of basis of who's the best possible applicant, whereas commercial FM or AM licenses at this point in time are auctioned off to the highest bidder. Yeah, and that's you know that's uh, that's been a problem not in recent times. That goes back to the early '90s and sort of the move away from um, sort of the comparative situation. It, it is kind of a uh, and I people don't talk about this a lot, but the LPFM example is actually a pretty good one in that that was actually very indicative of how licenses used to be given away by the FCC in comparison to how the FCC deals with those problems now. Um, you know, one of the big issues this next couple years that the FCC will be dealing with in, in terms of technical standards is a lot of people want to put up satellites now, right? And there's a lot of need to make sure that there's space in the electromagnetic spectrum to let those things work. And, where satellite technology tends to work in the spectrum, there's there's physical problems with the spectrum there. So that you don't just have the adjacent and co-channel interference issues that you have with things like AM and FM radio or even digital television. There's there's actually physical gaps in that spectrum, which require a lot of technical knowledge. And those are things that the FCC doesn't fundamentally disagree on, regardless of party. Um, you know, everybody at the commission agrees that broadband deployment is a key issue. How you go about doing broadband deployment, though, is a fundamental divide at the commission. And, you know, that's that's true of a lot of issues. Um, you know, there's a lot... It, it's amazing when you have these transitions at the commission, whether it's just a new commissioner coming on board, is what we saw with Nathan Symington uh, towards the end of the Trump administration, or now where you're sort of resetting the commission's agenda how much speculation there is about what the commission is actually going to take on. And in reality, the commission just keeps doing the work that's in front of us. Um, it's how well the commission does that really sort of where questions get asked. I, Will I the FCC bring back net neutrality, for example, now that we're under Dem control? Well, it, it yes, but it's not a yes or no question. It becomes how are they going to do it? One factor that um, will carry over is that the FCC quietly released its response to the remand from the Mozilla uh, decision. The FCC nominally wins on its repeal of net neutrality, but has three significant setbacks um, that are remanded back to the commission for um, yeah, and, and resolution. This is, this is again, uh, uh, appealing the FCC's overturning or rescinding of net neutrality, also known as the uh, right. open uh, internet. Uh, the internet rules. freedom order. Internet freedom order. The internet freedom order, right, which is the name they give it to the rescinding. Uh, right. right. The, the, the court said they could do so, but that there were other issues that they would have to address. Right. And the FCC and now still has to address those. Well, they, they actually quietly released uh, their answers to that. They weren't much answers because the pie-led FCC didn't really see a need to go into that. That's, that's an entirely separate topic. But the preemption issue, which is where I was going with this, is front and center. And the preemption right issue now, is the issue that the FCC insists that it has full dominion over the Internet. Therefore, uh, municipalities or states that choose to pass their own open Internet orders are superseded by the FCC, even though in the sort of the same breath, the FCC says, well, we can't 
regulate net neutrality, right? Sort of, we can't reg- regulate net neutrality, and you states and municipalities, you also can't. That that's one of the issues uh, under review right. here. And that that issue is going to court very soon in California, hmm. where California passed a law on intrastate communications that would be regulated by net neutrality in the boundaries of the state of California. And obviously, with California's influence and all of the things that pass through California in terms of the Internet, that functionally means that there would have to be net neutrality on an interstate basis. That case was set to go to court here. It still is set to go to court as of the time we're recording this. But there is some advocacy outside of the FCC on an FCC issue that the FCC shouldn't be suing the state of California in a supremacy case like that moving forward. And, you know, so will the FCC under a Democratic administration bring back net neutrality? Yes, it might. Uh, It's logical to think that they would try to. The process in which is involved in that, though, isn't just it's not like flicking off light switch. You have to sort of you have to sort of walk back the garden path a little bit. Right. right? You have to get to where we started on all of this. And and Christopher Terry, what do you think is the likelihood that uh, Jessica Rosenworth will now uh, appointed as interim FCC chair? that she might be nominated to be permanent chair with her with her years of experience there at the commission. I think it's not unreasonable to think that uh, a Biden administration would want her as the lead chair. Um, there have been some other names thrown about, but I, I haven't seen a lot of traction on any of those. I, I mean, my practical assumption is, is that she's interim chair for a while while we await to find out who the third nominee would be, and then we'll have a better thing. But again, the question is, is her term is up at the end of this year or towards the end of this year and she'll have to be renominated anyway so you could kill you could do both things at the same time you could make it a permanent post or long-term post and renew her term has, has a woman at the same time has a woman ever headed the fcc before in united states history commissioner Clyburn was a temporary interim chair but not as a permanent no, no. There's never been a permanent woman chair of the FCC. And so I could imagine that might be uh, so, uh, an area in which the uh, the Biden administration might want to be a trailblazer as well. Well, and and I was interested to see that the Jessica Rosenworcel has has her own podcast too, where she interviews <laughs> women. Uh, Wait, I'm well, sorry, I laughed over what you just. What is the podcast about? It, it's in it's conversations with women. The podcast is called Broadband Conversations. That is going to the top of my queue today. I had no idea. Yeah. And so she interviews women who are making an impact, uh, according to the definition or according to the description of her podcast, making an impact on our digital lives. So I, I was listening today to a conversation she had with somebody at the Library of Congress. So it's mm. a broad, broad swath. We could do far worse. For a, for a chair mm-hmm. than Jessica Rosenmarsel, arguably we could do better too, but I would be perfectly excited if that became a long-term post. Um, no real objections to her. What are, um, what she's going to have her hands name? full with the, I'm sorry, she's going to have her hands full with the Republican commissioners until there's three Dems on the commission, though. Commissioner Carr wrote a sort of terse statement this week welcoming her aboard. Um, and Commissioner Symington hasn't been there long enough, but he was sent to the FCC to do things about Section 230. And so it's going to be a, a sort of a romper room there for a bit, I would imagine. Right. And you're, again, you're referring, Christopher, to what we discussed on the last time you were on our podcast, which um, off the top of my head was 
uh, roughly four weeks ago, perhaps? Yeah, about, it was, about a month ago, yeah. It was just prior to us finding out the results of the election in Georgia. It was before the riots on Capitol Hill. But what we discussed was that uh, the president, the outgoing president, Donald Trump, had just uh, replaced uh, one of the FCC uh, members with uh, his own handpicked person who was uh, um, a lot less familiar with the issues that the FCC generally uh, right. follows. It's, it's, you know, somebody who is a very, um, a very Trump pick, if I might uh, put it into those words. He seems like a nice enough guy, but uh, <laughs> his grasp. No, I mean, to be fair, he's, he seems like a nice enough guy. He seems well-intentioned enough, but uh, his grasp of the things that the FCC does is somewhat limited. A whole lot less wonky than your average FCC. Well, certainly less wonky than Commissioner O'Reilly was. Um, the person he replaced. Had, yeah, the person he replaced. Republican. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the whatever. Trump essentially I, I, fired. Quote there was a lot of things about Commissioner O'Reilly I, I sort of objected to both on principle but in practice. But Commissioner O'Reilly was a dedicated administrative law expert. Right. I mean, he understood the nuts and bolts of how things worked. And while I disagree with him on a lot of policy approaches, he he was sort of the the guy at the FCC who understood how these processes were supposed to work. And for that, I, I always had a lot of respect for him. I didn't agree with him on very much, but I, I did have a fair amount of respect for him, at least on that point. So. And what do you think we can expect for the next pick? Is there speculation about names being floated around i've had several reporters ask me about different people um i've heard some that are so patently obvious as to be ridiculous and then some that are so obscure that people have never heard of them but i have not heard a consistent batch of names among the people i've talked to is far more speculation than uh, answers you know even if it were three people that i could point at that are potentials i would give you the rundown on all three of them but it was it's more like 12 names that i've heard bantered about maybe 15 even that are floating around out there so it's uh you know i I just don't think it's i think the biden administration has a little bit different priority than worrying about telecommunications regulation right out of the gate here so which is which is ironic though because during the pandemic which is probably their top priority um having access to the internet is uh, life or death for some people. I mean, you can either go to work or you can't go to work. You could either go to school or you cannot go to school safely. Yeah, so but it's, it's hard not... to get things enacted quickly, right? right? Yeah. I mean, you know, certainly that, you know, in, in some ways, executive orders well, would probably know, if uh, things work are going... more quickly than going through sure. uh, yeah. the commission. But it, the way that things are going, we either are uh, on out of the tunnel soon because the vaccine is distributed to everybody or we're still in this sure. lockdown situation for another year. No I, I mean, I think the best argument to get the Biden FCC up and running would be to have a new broadband deployment plan in place when the infrastructure bills start to come through. Ah, yeah. Good that starts getting out there a little wonky land. But I mean, we're, we're approaching the 11 year anniversary of the 10 year broadband plan now. And we didn't achieve even, a single one of the stated goals of that plan. And the most logical time to do something about that would be as part of a larger infrastructure package that would come down. And you would, you would want a fully functional FCC, regardless of what party is in charge. If you were going to try to fix that problem, that would be the time to do that is have a fully functional FCC and some sort of plan in place to target broadband deployment as part of a larger infrastructure package. 
the Trump administration spent a lot of money on broadband deployment. I, I, I think they don't get enough credit for that. The problem is, is that they sort of targeted it in weird ways. They targeted in areas that were served, but perhaps underserved rather than hitting spots that just where there's absolute gaps in broadband deployment. And part of that problem was one of the gifts that the Trump FCC has left on the table for the incoming FCC, that in the national broadband plan, we were supposed to be talking about 100 and 100 slash 50 speed and the FCC to make their broadband numbers look better over the last decade, change that number back to 25.3. And so it's 25 megabits that you can receive and three megabits that, that you can send. Send, right. Recognizing that, say, watching 4K video on Netflix eats up your 25 pretty easily. Very quickly. And uh, Commissioner Pai released a report that they had kind of sat on for about two, three weeks, maybe, maybe even a month, uh, that said that the FCC still believes that three upload is still adequate speed for residential broadband. And that's just, I mean, it, which just means it, that your TikTok is going to take a very long time to get there. Well, but I mean, yeah. I mean, Paul, you're joking, but it, I'm not joking. A, actually, I'm trying to put it I, in perspective. Yeah, but can it? But can a kid go to school with those speeds? That's right. What I want. No, no, that's about. the question because three three megabits up is is pretty strained in a lot of cases. If you're say on a video conference, if yeah, you're can on a, a kid Zoom go call. to math class? Can can a kid yeah. get help with their math homework with those speeds? You know, TikTok what? is fun. And and it is, uh, I don't want to say it's a bomb that's not accurate. It's more of a lit fuse without an explosive attached to it that they they sort of left on the desk of the people that are coming in and how they're going to deal with that. Because now, in practical terms, the FCC is going to have to do some sort of analysis to determine whether or not that decision was accurate when it does makes its next move on broadband deployment. So that was a, a parting gift, to say the least. But, I mean, the, the fundamental problem is is that to get to the relatively pathetic numbers we have on broadband deployment 11 years after the 10-year plan, you have to change the number of what constitutes broadband substantially to get to that. And that's going to be a real issue moving forward. No matter what happens with COVID, broadband is really a part of people who have access to its lives. And, you know, you've you've sort of let the problem linger longer and now it's going to be more expensive and harder to fix. I remember in 1998 or so, 97 in Illinois, where I lived at the time, at the time Ameritech was the regional bell company uh, now absorbed into AT&T, arguing to the Illinois legislature about how uh, they needed to give them a break on regulation because they promised that 100 megabit speeds were just around the corner statewide. We will offer you from farm towns to Peoria to Chicago. Just around the corner, we'll have 100 megabit speeds to your house if you grant us this, uh, you know, if you get off our backs, essentially. As we all can do the math, uh, 1998 <coughs> was uh, 13 years ago. So we can see where how that all worked out. So, so we do have a lot of things to keep uh, track of at the Federal Communications Commission this year. Uh, Christopher Terry, uh, professor of media law from the University of Minnesota, is joining us here on Radio Survivor to help us figure out what's going on with the Federal Communications Commission and the things that really will affect our ability to use the Internet, how well we use the Internet, and, of course, our communications infrastructure, what will radio, television, what will our news be like because many factors that that, that matter to it are things like who owns this media and then 
what did they do with it? And this is Radio Survivor. I'm Paul Reismandel. Also with me are my co-hosts and co-producers, Jennifer Waits and, and Eric Klein. So, Chris, the Federal Communications Commission was in front of the Supreme Court on uh, the 19th of January as part of this long-standing uh, case, FCC v. Prometheus uh, Radio Project. Prometheus is a stands in for a group of uh, public interest organizations who have sued the FCC regarding its regulation of ownership in the media. And, and a particular issue in this case is how is the effect of ownership regulations on uh, the ownership of media, radio and television in particular, by women and, and minorities – the case has been sitting in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which is which is actually out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, for well well over a decade, going on two decades now. And the FCC appealed this to the Supreme Court. And, and you know, in short, uh, effectively, the, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals keeps telling the FCC, you know, you want to you, you say you want to re- you know change the rules, or you, mostly you want to loosen the ownership regulations, allow. Uh, single companies to own even more television stations or possibly more radio stations. But you, you don't provide research that seems to adequately show why, why this is in the public interest or that, necess- you know, that it will create greater diversity uh, uh, or you know, that it will have uh, really things that, are, that, are in, in, that will be effective <laughs> for democracy, shall we say, versus just only help to line the pockets of the, of the existing owners. And the FCC is trying to get out of this kind of uh, wormhole it's gotten itself into of sort of making these updates, you know, the court giving guidance, you need to do this, you need to do this, and them sort of failing their homework uh, for all intents and purposes. So, so the big day was on the 19th with, the, um, with FCC v. Prometheus in front of the Supreme Court. What was, what was the oral arguments, right? This is oral arguments. This is the opportunity for the FCC to present its best case as well as uh, the, claim, the, 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 the opponents uh, under Prometheus to present their best case. What were the big things that came up on that day? Well, so the Prometheus case, and we've talked about it several times over the years that we've been together. And I think the first time I came on, that's what we actually talked about. And we've talked about it several times since. So on uh, the 19th, what happened was that um, you have actually three different parties that pled a case in front of the Supreme Court. You had the FCC, you had the NAB who was sort of on the side of the FCC. The National Association not, of Broadcasters, the right. largest broadcast lobby in the United States. Right. Uh, they, they sort of agree with the FCC, but not entirely. Uh, and it was actually two cases that were merged into one case. So that was that's sort of on one side. And then on the other side, you have the Prometheus uh, group, which is the lead, play, lead respondent, uh, but represents a large group and relatively diverse group of what have been known as the citizen petitioners in these cases. So the FCC goes first and the FCC's sort of central argument is, is that the third circuit has uh, gone beyond the authority granted to courts when they review administrative agency decisions. Um, Unlike at the appellate level in the Third Circuit, where this case usually gets argued, it wasn't an FCC lawyer arguing it. It was the uh, deputy solicitor general arguing on behalf of the government. And frankly, I didn't think his argument was very good. Um, But what was notable about it is he made a relatively straightforward FCC argument that 
the FCC has tried to solve these problems many times, but they, they just can't get the Third Circuit on board and that the agency believes that the Third Circuit has exceeded its authority here and that they would really like some form of relief. And although there have been several press reports that suggest that the justices were on board with that, that really wasn't my read at all. In fact, I thought um, the justices asked some really pointed questions of the FCC during the FCC's time. And uh, it was, uh, they were direct and very specific. Now, so what, was, what were some of those questions? What, 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 what were they kind uh, of... I'm getting, I'm getting there. Uh, so just for a little, for the simple sake of discussion, there's really two cases when you take the Prometheus cases to the Supreme Court. There's the issues that are in the Prometheus case. And then there's the judicial practice issues, how courts are interacting with administrative agencies. There were a lot of people who thought the Supreme Court took this case on the governmental and judicial practice angle. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Gorsh, they are absolutely involved in, in questions on that, that front. There's a lot of movement in the legal community to move that way. But that wasn't what the questions were actually really. There was a couple of them, but there was more questions about whether or not the FCC had met the obligations on this minority ownership issue. So you have the media ownership issue, which is how the FCC is doing in reviewing the rules that were handed to them in the 1996 Telecommunications Act. And then there's a secondary issue about how those decisions are affecting uh, the ownership of stations by women and minorities, which is a direct diversity issue. And to be fair, the FCC got asked some really pointed questions about the minority ownership issue. And I, I, I'm frankly kind of surprised about that. Uh, one of the justices that really surprised me was Justice Barrett. She asked a couple of di- really direct questions on this diversity issue. Justice Barrett, the newest member of the Supreme New- Court. Newest member. You know, the part of the reason that surprised me is because she hasn't been on the court long enough to, to get a feel on how she asked questions. But notably, Justice Thomas asked a couple questions of the FCC, which if you know anything about the Supreme Court, Justice Thomas doesn't talk very often. Justice Thomas has, to his credit, been very interested in broadcast regulation going back. And the last major broadcast regulation case that went to the Supreme Court was over broadcast indecency uh, back in 2012. So there really hasn't been a a bunch of cases that dealt with broadcasting's standards of review in the court for, you know, the better part of a decade now. So then the NAB attorney went up. Her name is Helgi Walker, and she has a very impressive, impressive attorney. Let me, let me just say that. Uh, although I don't subscribe to the ideas that she's uh, presenting, she, she's very impressive. She was very impressive at the Third Circuit. She was very impressive uh, this week or it, last week in the, uh, in the oral argument. And her argument is different than the FCC's argument. Her argument is, is more on that administrative law aspect. Her, the NAB's position is that the statute, by that I mean the 1996 Telecommunications Act, and specifically Section 202H, which is sort of the source of all of this dispute, doesn't require the FCC to consider the public interest or things like minority ownership, except when they affect competition. So competition is the most important uh, mechanism that the FCC is responsible for as a result of the, the powers given to the agency by Congress. And her argument is very similar to the argument that she made at the Third Circuit, the last go-round, where the broadcasters are basically pinned in place by this. Whether the FCC wants to do nothing, as it tried to do in 2007 or in 2016, 
or the FCC wants to take radical action like it tried to do in 2003 and in 2017, um, the broadcasters need some sort of understanding of how the rules are going to be modified. And her argument is largely about the relief that broadcasters are due as part of this process, that she brought up several times that this process has taken 17 years to get to the Supreme Court in hopes of actually getting that relief. Of course, what isn't mentioned is that the Federal Communications Commission is largely responsible for that having taken this long. In fact, the need to appeal this case to the Supreme Court, which added three years to the timeline itself, um, was a decision that the FCC made on its own uh, instead of in October of 2019 taking its fourth loss from the Third Circuit and going back and completing the already open ownership review that is is still pending from 2018, uh, the agency decided it would be better to fight this in court. And that, when you take their two arguments together, that's what this case is largely about, is trying to get the Third Circuit out of the way. And by that, I mean having the case removed from the Third Circuit jurisdiction and sent back to a court like the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which gives the agency a little more leeway than the Third Circuit has given them in this. So that was sort of the petitioner side, sort of and, and people how that were the bringing the challenge. Uh, respond to to those arguments, to the argument that that the NAB was making that one um, minority ownership or um, you know uh, public interest is is secondary to to market or competition interests. Um, let's take that one. I mean, how did they re- did, did they did they contend with that? Did they have any questions with with that assertion? Because it's that's a fresh. I mean, not. F- totally fresh but it's a sort of fresh one i think sure um the uh it was kind of a mixed bag um some of the justices seem to think that the fcc had actually done this but can't really get around some of the precedent that makes this more complicated there's a case involving um construction that uh did away with some of the fcc's abilities um to uh to do preferential programs uh, right, for lack the, of a better way of the construction that you're referring to is the uh, federal contracts, right? That hiring, yeah, it was uh, hiring the, preferences for for minority owned businesses. Right. The case is Adirond Constructors versus Pena, and what it did is it overturned a decision of the Supreme Court from earlier on that allowed the FCC to do sort of preferential programs like that. That decision was called Metro, and it allowed the FCC to have things like a distressed sale policy and tax benefits for minority owners to give them some enhancements in comparative situations. So when that went away, that complicated what the FCC has been trying to do ever since. And the FCC is basically using that complication to justify not doing any work. So the justices were, were less skeptical that the FCC hadn't done the work, but they were kind of skeptical that the Third Circuit isn't the correct continuing venue for this. Uh, it was hard to get a read, but they, they're, they're at least interested in that question. And to be fair, in 17 years is a long time for a resolution on an issue like this. But part of that is, is that the FCC still hasn't done what the court told it to do in 2004, right? That's not Prometheus's fault. It's not the Third Circuit's fault. It's the FCC's fault. And at least a few of the justices seem very skeptical on that point. And there's a larger judicial review issue there that 
that comes up. Uh, the usual suspects, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Korsh, they had some questions on that. Justice Alito asked a question about that as well. But it, w- it wasn't, uh, and it wasn't quite a centerpiece. Sort of, uh, trying to get at whether, again, trying to address whether the Third Circuit is the right venue, what, what, what would they kind, you know, or whether it should be yeah. properly moved to the D.C. Circuit. That's what basically their questions were. Well, about. or to end Prometheus as the line of cases, let the FCC make a decision and then start over with the judicial review process, uh-huh. which is what the NAB has been arguing for for a couple of years now. So just toss out, re- toss out the D.C. Circuit's decision. Everything, everything right. that's been done to this point, basically press the reset button on it and then try again. Right, that okay. can't get past what we've done. The past is the past. Let us start over, and then we'll try again in a per- potentially more friendly venue. And the, 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 you could see some of the justices, or you could at least from their questions, you could tell they were kind of wrestling with that, whether or not that was the right idea. I think conceptually they think it's the right idea, but the, the facts of this case sort of sort of complicate that. And, and I... I, I, I... I, I might regret this, but I just want to throw into this conversation that what we're what we're talking about is that uh, 35 years ago there were more radio stations that were owned by a more diverse uh, population of, of of Americans. It was and in the in this gener in this multi generational process, um, fewer and fewer owners uh, control more and more of the media. It's sort of the story of my entire life, so it's it's almost difficult to really grasp. Um, why it still matters. But I well, I th- this didn't come up at oral argument, and I was kind of surprised, is that really, in, in most ways, the rules are still the same as they were in 1996, that the, the rules haven't really undergone a fundamental change because the FCC has punted the couple times it had an opportunity to do something about it, and the couple times it actually tried to do something about it, it got remanded by the Third Circuit. So the rules, there's been one significant rule change. That's the national television ownership rule that was changed to accommodate the Fox O&Os that were uh, bought during the New World Communications deal. That Those facts don't matter. They raised a limit uh, by 4%, in, but that's really the fundamental change in the rules. Now, there's a lot of rhetoric that was floating around on uh, at oral argument about how some of these rules go back to the 70s. That's true for one rule. That's the newspaper broadcast cross-ownership rule. Um, but unspoken was the fact that the newspaper broadcast cross-ownership rule was upheld by the Supreme Court when that went up for review in the late 70s, and that part of what the FCC and NAB are asking is for the court to overturn existing precedent. And that gets into some dicey other issues that I think factored into the judicial side. And I just want to throw a little bit more spice into our conversation. I I would contend that we at, we're in a situation where trust in the media is low and where uh, the former president was able to uh, incite a mob to attack the Capitol based on lies because of that trust in the media is so low. And in the background, I would contend that um, one of the reasons why Americans uh, are feeling this way is because of uh, corporate consolidation of the media. That if, if the people that worked at your local television station – were your neighbors and the owners were your neighbors, you might be more likely to uh, trust what you see on the news or, or, or be connected to your radio station and, and feel like you're a part of an American system that you can trust, that you can be a part of as opposed to um, something that needs to be torn down and burned. The, uh, the 
collectively, the petitioner argument was more about concluding the line of cases to this point and trying to set up some new boundaries for what they would go. And I think the the major takeaway from the petitioner side is what the NAB asked for very clearly and what the FCC was asking for in a far less clear manner is they need some guidance. Part of the problem is Section 202H, which is the governing statute. It's from the Telecommunications Act. It requires the FCC to modify or repeal existing rules if they are deemed to be no longer necessary in the uh, in the context of competition. And that statute is so ambiguous that it can be interpreted about 17 different ways. Uh, the NAB argument is, is that they have provided the most logical uh Uh, reading of the statute. But both sides are like, you know, even if you aren't willing to uphold the 2017 order that the FCC put down, give us some guidance on how to resolve this dispute. And to be fair, uh, the petitioners aren't wrong about that. The, The Third Circuit has sort of told the FCC what to do. The FCC's refused to do it. If the court comes back and says, okay, the Third Circuit exceeded its authority, but it's not wrong on telling the FCC what to do, and then actually provides a path forward for the FCC to resolve these problems, that could potentially be sort of groundbreaking here. On the other side, though, the respondents, and this is the attorneys uh, representing the citizen petitioners led by Prometheus, they kind of made a different argument here. And um, I've had some concerns about their approach to this. I actually thought they should have made a bigger deal of the minority ownership. Uh, issues um, because they they illustrate how the FCC has basically ignored basic administrative procedure. And by that, I mean that the last three attempts of the FCC to produce some sort of minority ownership program, they produced programs that allowed for consolidation beyond the 1996 Telecommunications Act limits, but also contained absolutely zero mechanisms that ensured that the stations that became available through those programs actually went to women or minorities. And that right there it makes a lot of what the FCC has done over the last 20 years fairly arbitrary and capricious. But that was not an, it was an argument that was made in a lot of the supporting briefs, the amicus briefs, excuse me, uh, in support of um, the Prometheus side. But Prometheus didn't make that argument. Instead, their, their sort of approach was to argue that this is a straight administrative law case and that the FCC hasn't followed a series of standards that apply to how agencies act. And they're not wrong about that, but I think they they try to make a complicated legal discussion out of it rather than sort of the straightforward examples of why it was bad. And that clearly did affect the questions that the Prometheus side got from the justices because there were several questions about what kind of evidence actually does exist to say that the FCC is wrong. And the, uh, the petitioners relied heavily on a free press study, which was in some dispute at the agency for some time as a result of that, even though there's a fair amount of empirical evidence out there that shows that if you want minority owners to be financially successful and you want them to produce the kinds of content that you hope they'll produce, you need to license them with small uh, stations at the local level with inside of small companies. And that's where you're most likely to get programming that reaches out to racial or ethnic minorities, but also in the cases where there are a few women owners, that's the primary way that you get content, especially informational content that uh, is targeted at women. 
And um, so I disagree with the approach. I actually thought they made a couple of really good arguments on the on the respondent side. Most notably is the one that I think doesn't get talked about a lot, that regardless of what happens in this case, the FCC has an ownership review it has to finish this year. Uh, the 2018 review was put on apps. It was started on the last possible day it could be started under the statute. And basically no action has been taken pending the outcome of this case. That that decision, whenever the Supreme Court decides uh, this case, whatever happens, unless it's it's totally out of this world and overturns major sections of the Telecommunications Act, the um, the mandate under 202H is that the FCC produce a decision this year, uh, this calendar year, 2021, because in 2022, they have to do another review. And regardless of who wins or loses or what the outcome of the case is, that fact doesn't change. And that was an argument that I've been making for a long time, that the FCC should have taken its licks in 2019 from the Third Circuit. And while the PI FCC was still constituted and fully constituted, they could have released another ownership decision. It, was, it would be going back to court anyway. But at least they would, well, at least they would have had been operating from the this is our continuing position or what have you yeah. now you you've you've made the situation even far worse in that you get a decision that may uphold a 2017 order from Ajit Pai that could be radically overturned by a democratic led commission this year which of course will be decisions that go back to court and i think that the fc the pi fcc didn't do themselves any favors they certainly do any citizens any favors but that's not that was not high on the pi priority list while he was at the FCC, but they, the fact that they didn't just pick up the 2018 review to resolve these issues, it, I mean, That's it's indicative FCC. of the entire yeah. problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, this is, this is a fascinating thing, of course, and this is why we spent so much time talking about it. And it's, you know, I think in some ways it's easy for some folks eyes to glaze over or to, you know, in many ways it feels like media ownership is, is is a horse has, has long left the barn, right? And is it is on the, you know, has, has entered and, and become, you know, a stockbroker on Wall Street, right? It's so far afield. Yet, um, what we see, you know, in, in, in the fact that this case continues to, to be, has continued to be adjudicated for 17 years at the DC Circuit, I'm sorry, at the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, is 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 these very effects that we see the the uh, reduction in in minority and, and, and women's voices and, and ownership stakes uh, you know at a time when otherwise it seems as though the trends in our culture at large as well as I think you know even corporate culture is towards greater minority representation greater uh, women's representation it's not a straight line it's not without or at least a desire for uh, yeah it, you know, you know? <laughs> and, and you see a lot of it being affected it's slow and and, 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 and there's so much improvement to be had, right? I don't wish to make an argument that we've reached Valhalla, but it, what to see how media ownership has, has not only uh, dragged, it, it, is, it is sort of rescinded, it's gone backwards, and, you know, and on a law, you know, with, with this great rewrite uh, that happened now, you know, 25 years ago, right? And, and it seems as though 
lots of us would like to lots of people would like to see something different in our media and it's like as if folks have forgotten maybe that's possible through these means because of of all these years 17 years of of what effectively is inaction and so there's there's been even on the one side you can argue well there hasn't been a tremendously uh, greater consolidation necessarily um, but there's also been no no other improvement, right? No, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm everything I say is with a big hedge, right? But it's it's and and that um, it, it really feels like you know, and I think you, this is something you said, Chris, is that you know it's just these failed opportunities after failed opportunities after failed opportunities to both, I think, on the one hand, to to make the media uh, ownership and therefore make make our electronic media. Uh, better reflect uh, the country, but also what there may be lost real opportunities for for the marketplace as well, right? Looking at it from from the perspective of a commercial broadcaster, uh, you know, and, and in part that's why the NAB is a you know assigned on to the to this suit. But uh, you know, what innovations have been have 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 just passed us by is really, I think, a big question. Well, and I think it's 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 bigger. You sort of put you sort of phrase that discussion in the context of why do we still care about this? Well, let me give you a reason. The underlying philosophy that led to the disaster on media ownership is the underlying philosophy the FCC is applying to all sorts of other things that don't have anything to do with broadcasting, right? The underlying philosophy behind media ownership is the underlying philosophy about why our broadband deployment is so bad. Right? So Media ownership has become sort of this vehicle for understanding why the FCC is really bad at its job, but it's deeper than that, right? What the FCC did in the late 90s and early 2000s on media ownership, the, the sort of the larger philosophical approach to regulation there, it still pollutes the commission. And that's true on both the Republican and Democratic side, right? They cannot admit that economics is not always the best way to solve problems. And media ownership should have taught us that lesson, right? We created these massive companies, and not just in radio, also in television, right, who are continuing to struggle financially. And the argument always was, the bigger we let these companies get, the better they're going to be able to use resources effectively to give us better programs. And instead we get too big to fail, right? I mean, it's sort of the other side, right? (laughs) Well, the problem is, is that they are too big to fail, but they still fail anyway. Right. Right. I mean, I have my own beefs with the Clear Channel empire, of course. No, I but the reality is, um, you know, the Clear Channel, the Clear Channel monolith was supposed to be the poster child for all this. And actually, it becomes the poster child for all this when the company basically folds under and has to sell off huge chunks and then rebrand itself every couple of years to stay afloat. Right, that was none of that was supposed to happen. At one point, Clear Channel owned about one out of every ten commercial radio stations in the United States, but they were also providing content to about half of them through their syndication arms. Now they're a shell of that. They're basically an un, a nationally managed content repurposer at this point, and that's at at best. So we should have learned from this process, but because there has been 17 years of basically inaction as this process has worked its way through the courts, it's been allowed to infect 
that philosophy has been allowed to infect other things that the commission has done. It, it comes to this. The courts can give the FCC some very clear direction that allows them to move forward, or Congress has to get involved. We're, we're past the point at where this is ever going to be solved easily. The last time Congress did anything about this is when they extended the FCC's review periods from two years to four years. And then Congress has washed its hands of this process since. And that was in 2003. So you have Congress that's 18 years out from dealing with this problem. And it has to be dealt with now, right? People want broadcast stations now for one and only one reason. And that is to own them when there is political advertising at stake. Right, It is the driving mechanism for the acquisition of new broadcast properties by existing companies because there is so much money to be made during political advertising. That's the, that's the only time that the, that the airwaves um, turn a profit is uh, during election season. It's not the only time, but it's the majority of the time now. And it is a major cash flow for them. That, that's... That discussion is an entirely separate discussion, but it is a reality. Sinclair's desire to buy the Tribune stations was largely to have stations in battleground states <laughs> where, no, it's it's true. I yeah. mean, I think they would have even admitted it because the the quantity of cash that passes through those stations for political advertising is rather substantial. And when you have stations in lots of battleground states, when you're dealing with national campaigns or national issue groups, right, you can... You can make that process work fairly efficiently and reap the whirlwind from it. So, as you've said, I'm a professor at Minnesota. Every two years since I've been there, I've done a course in political advertising where we've tracked all of the spending on broadcasting, radio, and television. In 2018, we tracked $126 million on the radio, television, and cable head ends in the state of Minnesota last year. that's just Minnesota, yeah. That's just Minnesota, right? Right. In last year, we only did the radio and television stations, and it was $86 million. And, I mean, that is a lot of money for a state that has population, you know, in the $6.5 million range. I mean, it's, it's not – it's crazy to think how much money you're talking about. Yeah, I so I'm not, uns- the, I'm not unsympathetic the to the NAB's now. point of view that they need some kind of relief. We all need some kind of relief. But what has to happen at this point is, is that – the FCC is going to have to admit what it did at first was wrong and try to implement some sort of corrective mechanism that works for not only the citizen petitioners, but also for the industry petitioners. Otherwise, this is going to be back in court in 18 to 20 months, right? And there'll be another two-year delay on it at that point. So, so Professor and, Christopher Terry, we're running out of time here. And so the last thing I want to do, of course, is is for you to get out your crystal ball, and I want you to look at the bottom of the cup here and help us to read the tea leaves. <laughs> Given the I mean, understanding that oral arguments don't aren't don't always clearly indicate where things are going, that that justices may you know be making arguments they themselves you know maybe you know uh, making a, a devil's argument. That's the wrong one. Um, but anyway, may, may make arguments, you know, and, and test arguments that they themselves don't believe, but they, you know, they really want to want to get around and get kind of a three sixty view on something. Do you have a sense of where you think this might go? Uh, how how the justices m- might rule? 
uh, and then well, there's uh, a lot FCCV Pacifica. Uh, there's a lot of talk about um, <laughs> Pacifica, right? Yeah, yeah. There's uh, a lot uh, of talk uh, about the VFCC. Uh, there's a lot of talk in the media about how the commissioner, uh, how the justices seem sort of sympathetic to the commission. I don't know that that was my read uh, on it. I can see this going one of two ways. A rather expansive decision that basically upholds everything the FCC's done for 20 years um, that takes case away from the Third Circuit and pre- basically presses the reset button, essentially what the NAB was arguing for. Uh, but I could also see it being a far more narrow decision where the court says that the Third Circuit was sort of naughty here, but they still retain jurisdiction in that the correct mechanism uh, is to resolve this in the forthcoming annual, uh, quadrennial review processes with the understanding that it's going to be back at the Supreme Court before too long anyway. And I guess if you're asking me for my, what would I put money on or what would be my prediction, it would be the second, that you're going to see a relatively narrow decision, provide some guidance for the FCC to break the deadlock with the Third Circuit, and some sort of understanding that there's, no matter what happens, that the, the issue is going to be back in front of a court, maybe not the Third Circuit, but a court at some point in the not-too-distant future. And then you deal with what the FCC does after uh, that decision. Uh, and, of course, this is of a, a somewhat different FCC, uh, even though we've had Democratic-led FCCs in the 17 years, as well as Republican-led. The uh, the failures seem not to be reserved to any particular party here. It seems to be the Plenty of blame to go around. As a Plenty whole. of blame to go around, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota, uh, thank you again for joining us to to go over what's happening with the FCC. Uh, we'll definitely be be keeping our eye on things. Typically, about how long do we expect a decision from uh, a Supreme Court? It could be a few months. Um, a few months I would think I towards the end of spring, we'll see something. Very good. Well, we really appreciate uh, your perspective and, and all the time you spent uh, following this and then, of course, having the, the, the fun of, of actually listening in. Yeah, it was, a, it was very exciting. I've never known as much about a Supreme Court case when it was being argued as I did this time. Interesting, yeah. that's um, Well, we're in the podcast zone of it all, and you, we have like uh, five more minutes of your time. Uh, like what? what was the – what was the – strangest part about your socially distanced supreme court hearing that you've i mean you've been following this case for um forever better, yeah for the better part <laughs> oh, of yeah, your professional was it, career like, was it ever video or audio only there's audio only there's no cameras in the supreme court i'll tell you um it was hard to sit i, I in in a way i was kind of glad it was socially distanced because it would have been hard for me not to like interrupt if had i actually been there I know so much about this. I mean, just my my knowledge of all the intimate little details going back to the beginning of this process is, I mean, it's, it's bordering on obsessive, which sure. was really clear to me this past week. <laughs> but, um, well, no, I've, to be yeah. fair, I probably yeah. know as much about this as anybody. Yeah, right? yeah, I mean, yeah. it's literally my expertise. But there were several times where I, I felt like I could have done a better job of answering the specific questions because my knowledge is so deep. The FCC's attorney, who is actually the government's attorney in this case. Oh, uh, and I, I'm sorry. I would never have done this during the radio show. Does it matter that it happened on 
January 19th and not on January 20th. It's actually uh, one day before so a, Biden. A couple of the amicus after. people act, asked me about this at one point. And it's actually not that uncommon for an agency to try to get those cases on the docket uh, while you still have the same solicitor general. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, sorry to interrupt so though. Sorry, sorry. It, it, no, it's it's fine. Um, the deputy solicitor general, his name is Stewart. He, I just didn't think he argued a very good case. Um, and it was very clear how good a case uh, the NAB attorney argued in comparison to him, right? I mean, it was it was night and day. But I also think that the Prometheus attorneys, I, I still, I mean, I understand what they did, and I think they did it as good as it possibly could have been done. But I really think that they they their focus on trying to make this into an administrative law case and really getting down to the 706s and all the technical bits really distracts from the larger issues in this case. And I felt that, like, as strongly as I felt it at any point during this process, I felt it when I was listening to the oral arguments that day, is that there were a couple of times where they asked her a direct question that I actually knew a much better answer to than she gave. And among that was the discussion of this free press study. Um, Justice Breyer asked her a direct question about, you know, why have you not why have the people who supported you not? Why have 10,000 lawyers and economists not done this research on this very specific question of minority ownership? And I can, from the top of my head, recite 10 studies that would exactly answer the question that he asked, including the two of mine that I've done on this issue, one of which was actually cited by one of in one of the amicus briefs, right? And so that was actually kind of hard for me to, to do that. But again... I also recognize that my encyclopedic knowledge of this entire process <laughs> borders on the yeah. insane. Do you, do you think that right? this is also a terrible question? Do you think that um, it's a big, it's a very big deal that Amy Comey Barrett, or uh, gosh, I don't know her name, yeah, that's um, right. that yeah, yeah um, uh, you know, has taken Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat? Does that really change the outcome of this issue? I don't think so. Um, you know, the, the the question about this case is always why the Supreme Court took it, right? And I, I still have not heard a satisfactory answer to that question. My assumption was is that they took it because of this judicial and administrative agency interaction issue. But that was hardly at all what the oral arguments were about. And there are... There's a lot of, I mean, whatever you think of the the other issues with the Prometheus cases, there is some really significant deference questions and how ju- how judicial review of administrative agencies uh, occurs and what that process is supposed to look like. And you have justices on the on the court now who are very interested in that specific issue. And my assumption was going into this that minority ownership would not be even mentioned in the context of oral argument it would all be these really technical administrative law questions. And that really wasn't what it was about. Uh, it was really about this, how has the FCC tried to deal with this issue that the third circuit has sort of, I don't want to say saddled them with, but put on them to resolve that the FCC seems unable to resolve. There were a lot more questions in that vein than sort of this nerdy technical stuff on the other side. And I, frankly, I was surprised by that. Um, there were a lot of people who were pointing out that Justice Thomas seems very interested in not only the issues in this case, but sort of the larger issues that they represent, right? Broadcasting has always been treated differently under the law than basically any other speech controlling mechanism in the United States. And he asked a couple questions about 
how that's worked. There was a couple questions about that level of scrutiny. Broadcasting's treated basically like an administrative agency is normally treated rather than um, the way a newspaper would be treated in a similar situation. So there were questions about that. You know, there was the usual batch of rhetoric uh, that comes from all three sides. And But I mean, I, I, I think one of the more compelling things that happened was that the NAB really said, yes, we support what the FCC did in 2017, but we're really not on the side of the FCC here. Really, we, we are bringing sort of our own batch of issues to the table here, much of which is, is that we need some clarity on this one way or the other. So this has got to get resolved so we can press this reset button and start over. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I, I don't disagree with them on that. I sort of disagree on their resolution to that. But the issue that they bring up is actually a pretty solid one. And I was really impressed by the arguments that they made along that front. They didn't try to try to sugarcoat it at all, really try to focus on the fact that as an industry, they've been harmed regardless of what the FCC was trying to do, right? The fact that this has been tied up for this long. It was kind of interesting to listen to that. Um, Babies who were born when this issue was brand new have got their driver's license. More than that. Yeah, I I would like to to advertise our next show is join us for – uh, for the next installment of um, Chris Terry slowly goes insane, I think that would be yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but well, if we get a two thirty revision proposal in, right. we didn't uh, talk about section two thirty at all. In Congress, uh, you will. I'll speak in tongues if you want. Because, <laughs> didn't, uh, we didn't even say the words practically. It's, will you be, sa- will you be sad when this is all resolved? Uh, since you've been so like in it. <laughs> What, what's what's really interesting about the debate about 230 is that the people who really want 230 reformed are using the internet to make an argument to reform 230. Well, you know, I, I need to tell you, I was listening to a New Yorker podcast six days ago, and the New Yorker writer, whose name escapes me at the moment, was um, basically talking down her nose to, that Section 230 has allowed the the internet to go – to go into this dark realm of untruth that we can no longer trust. And I was shocked. I was really shocked that that's, that was, that that's the, there, seems to be one of the mainstream takes on, on this law. There are a lot of people who feel that way, but my, my answer to that is you don't understand what you're asking for, right? Yeah. That you don't understand that. Yes. Much like the first amendment, it protects an awful lot of really awful people and really awful speech. But 230, like the First Amendment, facilitates all the stuff that's really important, too. And so I've been, I've been wrestling with this for a little bit. The marketplace of ideas, you know, which is sort of the fundamental underlying First Amendment theory, uh, relies on the citizen to expose themselves to alternative streams of information. So the best that we can do from a policy perspective is make sure that those streams are available, right? And then short of dragging people clockwork orange style to watch C-SPAN, which, of course, I've always been a big advocate of. <laughs> I did that um, to my kid uh, yesterday. Well, I think that, uh, that it's about commercial incentive, right? It's, it's ultimately, it's, it's, it does go back to, to media ownership at that level or the same basic principles of, you know, of, of, of what is a functional marketplace. And, and marketplaces in which there is a functional oligopoly or monopoly 
uh, you know, will naturally uh, tend towards, uh, you know, the most sensational and and arousing uh, types of speech, right? And I think that, you know, and, and, and that is a part that gets left out time and time and time again is this reflection back. And it isn't completely. People are talking about big tech. Not always in the smartest of ways, you know, and, and reflecting yeah. on the the uh, you know the the screwed up incentives, you know, of say YouTube, for instance, right, which is in many ways a functional monopoly when it comes to to you know user generated video. You can create all the video yeah. you want on the internet, but it has become the de facto channel. Compared if to at longer, least you yeah, know cable television, where we have at least a few different owners. <laughs> you know what else I just saw is a very popular Twitter thread this week about how if Alex Jones has been deplatformed from X, Y, and Z, why does Apple still let his podcast go out on their yeah. their podcast feed? The th- and that was thing, also very chilling. To think the thing about that people suggestion. don't understand about two thirty is they look at bad actors like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter at all. And they they see the big bad wolf, right? And that's not wrong, but you take two thirty away; They'll those are there. not the they're yeah they're they're still going to be there. Those are not the people you're going to hurt. Guys like you guys are the people who get hurt without two thirty. And you're referring that, to radiosurvivors.com, this tiny. Yeah, website. I mean that's who gets hurt because you're going to have to you're basically going to have to either go out of business. Right, or you're going to have to have a content moderation scheme on Where everything that you do. That is so that it's Pernicious, so invasive so that right, yeah, yeah, or, that or like a you're not going to want to do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, I come on here and I say some controversial things about the FCC by putting them on the website. You'd be liable for things that I say, right? And that that's just not how it's supposed to work, right? I mean. Whether you agree with it or not, but it's what we saw with FOSTA really, really radicalized me on 230 protection. I was always sort of in the reform camp, like this law is kind of old, maybe we need to rethink it. But when they pass the FOSTA bill, they take this just absolutely razor thin slice out of 230 protection. The amount of speech and helpful speech that was destroyed literally overnight as a result of that absolutely radicalized me on the idea that 230 or something like 230 has to be in place right because the danger to the people online for not having those types of protections is just too high facebook's got the attorneys google's got the attorneys right all these platforms have the attorneys but the little guy they don't and what happens with fost is they get rid of a lot of really helpful speech that was designed to help people get out of sex trafficking situations, but those people were afraid to leave that content up for libel, for fear that they would be subject to, uh, you know, to punishment as well for as, having content that could be associated with sex trafficking online, and as, as well as sex workers trying to, you know, talk about their work and right. making their workplace safe. As, you it, know. it it really was it really was Foster that brought me around on this and this is i've sort of been i mean prior to fosta and prior to the debate over fosta i was very much in the reform but the sort of the replace camp okay let's yes we can't get rid of it but let's try to find something better but after that and since i've never seen anything that a 
protects as much speech as 230 does or B doesn't infringe upon the first amendment. Right. You, you, and you know, is two thirty perfect? No, but it, it's like the First Amendment. You have to take the bad stuff to have all the good stuff out there. And yeah, it was Foster that did that. Now, something that'll happen this year is that the Woodhall case is actually going to trial in uh, June, and we're going to get a real good look at what two thirty reform looks like in constitutional terms um, as a result of that Woodhall case. Is which? Woodall is a foundation that represents sex workers, um, and they brought a challenge to FOSTA, got tied up on some procedural issues uh, initially, but it's going to actual trial on the constitutional issues now. Uh, Cases, oral arguments set for the end of June. Is that federal court? Federal court, uh, D.C. district court. Uh, but court. that's that's one that heads up all the way to the Supreme Court before it's done, probably. Right, right. Uh, of course, the other issue that's related to this, but is somewhat uncomfortable, and you can feel free to edit this out if you desire, is you have a situation brewing uh, on Internet content protections over revenge porn that's mm. going to get kind of ugly here before it's said and done. The state of Illinois brought a case... Um, on their revenge porn law, the case is called Austin, that the Supreme Court of the United States didn't do a review on. And in that case, the Illinois Supreme Court decided that if they wanted to keep their revenge porn law constitutional, they had to judge it under the the legal test that they use for advertising law. Um, that was the first revenge porn law that had been challenged constitutionally that had been upheld by a state Supreme Court. Subsequently, Minnesota just uh, Minnesota Supreme Court just upheld their revenge porn law, but then argued that it's basically unprotected speech. And now you got a situation where you've got a lot of rain. I mean, revenge porn sort of uh, equates some certain ideas, but there's a lot of content that fits under that that wow. that sort of title. And if two thirty protection goes away, it won't be hard to declare a lot of things revenge porn that then makes them unprotected un, uh, speech. Wow. And that is, it's, it's still kind of at the, the low simmer stage, but you can see the train leaving the station on that one. And that, that has potential to be pretty awful. And I, I want to uh, make an road. argument that uh, we need media that is not the current cable network, you know, regime to even talk about these issues without, you know, uh, blowing their tops and going into sex panic mode. Well, this is, this is why we need a diverse media. That, that you're not wrong about that, but see, this is this gets down to sort of the technical aspects of First Amendment law, right? It's not real flashy. It's you know, it's a bunch of people like me who sit around and watch C-SPAN talking about these things in really, you know, sort of technical terms, and it's not quite, you know, it's the. Of course, the very famous thing that leads to Section 230 is the Time Magazine article called "Cyber Porn," where there's the picture of the kid with the eyes that are like he's like three years old and he's looking at the computer and his eyes are like this big and you know that sort of convinced everybody that the cda had to be added to the telecommunications act and the rest is history but you know it it doesn't quite have that some same sort of flash but you know we're we're approaching the situation we're approaching the the crossroad for speech protection and speech unprotection online in how that shakes out gets really scary. 
sometimes when you when you follow right. it to its well, logical then conclusions. The, it is a we are in also a very unique political moment because following the Capitol riots, there's much more of a there's much more tolerance on the left for for suppressing right. speech to, to try to protect ourselves. It's a very it's a very 9-11 Patriot Act sort of moment where – Yeah, and that worked out real well for us too. justifiable yeah. – like a, Who, a trauma look, that – Follow the money. Don't yeah. – uh, follow the money is what I keep saying. I'm going, I'm going to have to go. Yeah, that's the end. That's the end of our podcast. That was wonderful. All right. Well, my thanks to Dr. Christopher Terry who is a professor of media law at the University of Minnesota who joins us – Oh, five or six times a year to talk about the FCC. This one was quite a doozy because, you know, this was a Supreme Court a long time in the making. If you would like to listen to other previous episodes where we discuss these issues, the buildup to this Supreme Court case, you can find links to these episodes at the show notes for today, radiosurvivor.com, or of course, just go to our website and search for Christopher Terry's name. I very much appreciate all of the times that Christopher Terry has appeared on Ray Survivor to help keep me uh, well-informed of these issues. Ray Survivor, well, oh, before I say the credits, Jennifer Waits produced a short update because after we recorded this week's episode, there was some breaking news regarding the Voice of America and other radios that are government-sponsored by the U.S. government overseas. Um, We talked about these radios and their incredible history in the post-World War II era on a very recent episode of Radio Survivor in 2020. And one of the unique features of the history of this station, very recent history, is that in the last year of his presidency, Donald Trump be, uh, took an interest and uh, in, this, in these radios and installed a very political appointee to run the place who made some very controversial changes to... Uh, the culture of these stations, and uh, President Biden installed a new uh, leader at this time who made some very quick changes. And so all of that is something that Jennifer uh, will keep you um, will, will keep me honest and make a much more clear presentation of what just what news just broke. Hi, Jennifer Waits here, and I just wanted to add some additional information, a follow up to something that we covered on the last episode of the Radio Survivor Show. And that was, we had sort of an end of year episode where we were talking about some of the changes that had happened at the U.S. Agency for Global Media. That was podcast number 281. Well, since we recorded that episode, there have been even more changes at the U.S. Agency for Global Media and Voice of America. These are international broadcasters that are under the control of the U.S. government agency, U.S. Agency for Global Media. And with the new Biden administration in place, a lot of changes have happened. So we are quickly seeing a series of leadership shifts and at the United States Agency for Global Media, as well as its related international broadcasting groups, including Voice of America And as we had mentioned on last week's episode, up until his final weeks, Trump-appointed CEO Michael Pack had been installing conservative allies throughout the organization and its affiliates. So he was asked to step down on January 20th after the election and inauguration of Joseph Biden. So Pack resigned 
after being told that he would be terminated. And on the same day, Biden appointed a former Voice of America executive, Kalu Chow, as the acting CEO of U.S. Agency for Global Media. Chow then quickly fired a number of recent appointees or agency leaders. And then on Sunday, January 24th, the U.S. Agency for Global Media announced that Chow had replaced the heads of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio Asia, and Middle East Broadcasting Networks. And she also replaced three board directors that had, embo- had, that had been appointed by PAC in his final few days as CEO. And this is just sort of a footnote to the very tumultuous seven months at the U.S. Agency for Global Media under CEO PAC who was appointed by Trump and it and has been perceived as somebody who has had an agenda, a conservative agenda, trying to exert political control over coverage. In addition to myriad other things, there have been whistleblower complaints. There recently have been complaints about the use of funds um, to hire lawyers to investigate people in the agency it goes on and on. And on our last episode, we talked about something that happened recently in January, where Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State at the time, was brought in to speak at Voice of America, and and employees felt like this was a forced event that they were forced to cover, and very much a cheerleading event in a way. And and so one of their reporters asked a pointed question of Pompeo at the end of the speech, and they were promptly demoted to another position. And that was one of these final things that really got people up in arms about it. So at the same time, he was also installing a higher level he was also making other changes and installing board conservative board members on some of the affiliated agencies. All this was happening in the final moments before he was forced to resign. So interestingly, Voice of America's new acting director as of January 21st, Yolanda Lopez, had been briefly sidelined by PAC following the Pompeo incident. And she had oversight. She had editorial oversight over... Voice of America, and when one of her reporters posed that pointed question to Mike Pompeo, then Lopez was reassigned as sort of retaliation for that. So now now she is the new acting director, so in an interesting twist. So plenty more about, plenty more context about the U.S. Agency for Global Media and Voice of America, as well as scoop about the first few months at the agency under CEO PAC is on Radio Survivor Show number 265 from September 2020. We had an esteemed panel of historians and archivists who are experts on the topic. If you want to dig into this more. Well, thank you, Jennifer, for producing that update. Uh, always fun to you know keep a story rolling here at Radio Survivor. Uh, links to the previous episode where we go deep on the history of these radios, the Voice of America and the Radio Free Europe, as well as all the other related stations. Uh, Links in the show notes for today's episode at radiosurvivor.com. Well, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We are available to subscribe to anywhere where you get your radio on demand, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, 
Spotify, Google Podcasts, everywhere. Radio Survivor. We are also online at radiosurvivor.com. You should email us for any reasons to ask a question, to provide us with commentary, to give us feedback. Podcast at radiosurvivor.com is our email address. This radio show and podcast goes out for free to radio stations all around the country, community radio stations. It's always available as well for free as a podcast. We have produced five years worth of weekly episodes for the love of community radio, college radio, non-commercial radio, low-power FM radio, podcasting when it serves communities, online radio. That's what we do, and we do it for love. And if you would like to support the work, you can go to radiosurvivor.com slash support to find out more. We have a Patreon. We do some exclusive content there every once in a while. We have provided our Patreon supporters in previous years with a zine handmade by the Radio Survivor team. We had a wonderful time doing that, and we will do it again someday. (laughs) I laugh because it was a lot of work, and we really put our hearts into it, Uh, like we were kids again. Uh, It was really fun to make that zine. Find out more, radiosurvivor.com slash support. Well, on behalf of Jennifer Waits, Paul Reese-Mendel, and myself, Eric Klein, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.